Hi, welcome to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. My name is Pete Scazzaro, and today is a part two on the theme of when it's time to say no to, to leading or leadership opportunities, when it's time to say no to leadership opportunities. This topic is so key, uh, so important, uh, that I knew, I knew I needed to do two parts on it, uh, not just one. So last week we talked about three. I talked about three reasons uh, when it's time to say no to leadership opportunities. You know, our inner life, our maturity is not ready. Uh, God's limits have come to us, and it's one of the ways God's saying to us no. Or God's voice and timing. We just God's voice, God speaking, and we just have a sense of notice. This is not it. And so, as I said last week, as it says, you know, Paul writes that he who desires uh, to lead or to be an overseer desires a good thing. It's beautiful. Uh, and Paul is very much committed to raising up leaders. He says to Timothy, the things I passed on to you and trust to faithful uh, men and women who in turn will be able to teach others also. And so, yes, it's true. Some of us are reluctant to lead, um, you know, for reasons that, you know, we want to avoid suffering or pain, don't want the responsibility. And in that case, we need to hear the words of Paul to Timothy, uh, you know, fan into flame the gift of God that's inside of you. Uh, you know, Timothy was timid and fearful to take leadership in that uh, grueling church he was leading in, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, but I'm more concerned here in this podcast about those of us who just flippantly step into leadership opportunities. Uh, see, We see growth, we see expansion, we think it's all good, and we're not that thoughtful or prayerful about it. And, and almost treating church leadership like moving up a ladder, bigger, better, faster. And if you're wondering, why are you citing so much church history? Why are you bringing all these people in? And, and the reason is because uh, it's so foreign to us, this idea of slow uh, in the 21st century West, especially in the uh, evangelical Western church. It's, it's a culture that if we're going to learn about the, the slowness and ways of God, we've got to learn from the historical church. We go back 2,000 years and, and the global church as well. And so I want to expose us to other models. We're just so driven and fast moving and goal oriented in a hurry. I mean, I don't like waiting in traffic jams or traffic lights or airports. I don't like waiting for sermons to gestate. Uh, I wish God would just give it to me, you know, once in a while, a free one without it being the agony of birthing a child, a baby, you know, and I don't like slow elevators. I I don't like slow food. I like slow fast food. Uh, I don't like slow talkers. I'm from New York, as you probably know. Uh, I don't like having to wait on God to make a decision. Uh, I, I wish God would just speak it, make it clear. Uh, I don't like waiting for God to lead when I'm not sure which way I'm supposed to go when it's uncertain. And like you, I want a spiritual life. I just want to be in charge of it and have it unfold, and unfold, have it unfold according to my schedule. And so many of you listening are young, uh, and it's hard to see the large, long picture of your life. You know, it was Tertullian, uh, one of the church fathers, and uh, who wrote about how God's nature is to be patient and he moves slowly. Now think about it with me for a minute. I mean, the earth is, they say, geologists, is 10 to 14 billion years old. Human history is millions of years old. I mean, Abraham's, you know, 2000 BC, you know, God calls Abraham out, you know, and then God waits 2000 more years to enter human history in the incarnation of the person of Jesus. And God's just moving so slowly. And then, you know, God's birth into the womb of Mary, nine months are passing, you know, for the birth of God in the world and in Jesus. And, and God's just slowly moving and Jesus is going through the developmental stages of a human, just like us. You know, he's became one of us, you know, toddlerhood and childhood and teenage years and young adulthood. And just imagine in his mid-20s, he's watching all this stuff around him and 
He's not recognized uh, by folks. And I just imagine Jesus just slowly just sitting through synagogue services and boring sermons or bad rabbis and, you know, worship that's off tune and maybe going to fixed hour prayer and the person leading it's half into it or, you know, praying the Shema, you know, and, and, uh, but maybe not even present with it, almost doing it rotely. And here's Jesus participating year after year, uh, just waiting and slow. And I just imagine that the Roman pagan gods everywhere and the Greek gods and mystery religions that are flourishing and the big temples being built to these pagan gods. And I mean, and professing miracles being done and Jesus just kind of slowly watching it. And I think the Pharisees got their school and the, of Hillel and Shammai, the liberal schools and strict schools. And Jesus watches his friends go to the university. He's a carpenter with his father and Rome's emerging as a world power. And I mean, he's just, it's just slow, everybody. It's just really slow. And and then he allows himself to get baptized by John the Baptist, right? And he slowly emerges, you know, and at 30 years old. And, and, you know, he gathers the 12 slowly. Some scholars say over a year and a half. And Man, they are slow learners. I mean, he's not striving or rushing and even saying no to the devil in the wilderness, not not quick leadership. And just a supreme example of waiting uh, and embracing slowness and saying no to leadership opportunities is Jesus. And, I, 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 you know, I think of him at his arrest, and I've been pondering this and meditating on it now for quite a while, and his to the crucifixion and, and, and waiting as passerbyers or you know, come on down from the cross, and he trusts in God. Why doesn't God save him? And I mean, just the patience of Jesus of saying no to leadership opportunities. He's leading by not leading. You know, he's powerful by not exercising earthly power. But it's God's nature to be patient. And and for beginning to end of Scripture, we see stories of God over and over again uh, leading leaders um, and teaching them slow. I think of Abraham, 25 years to have his first child. I mean, my gosh, talk about slow. Or Joseph, you know, falsely accused, you know, years, uh, who knows, 10, 13 years. Scholars differ. How long was he exiled from his home country and away from his family? But God knew he could not have that kind of power and authority while he was young. Uh, Moses, 40 years in the desert, you know, doesn't emerge till 80 or Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, wandering. And uh, again, what's a long time for us is an instant to God. What seems pointless to us is, is obviously, is for God is filled with purpose and meaning. And I, I like what G.K. Chesterton said. You know, if you're on the wrong road, the worst thing that happened is for it to move quickly or for you to move quickly. And I think back of my life and just think about yours for a moment. What would happen if you received everything you wanted immediately on your own terms from God? Uh, it could be a disaster. That's why it is God's nature to move slowly. And when the Holy Spirit descends, uh, patience and waiting is always on its side. That's something Tertullian said in the fourth century. And impatience, along with fear, is one of the roots of all sin against God. In fact, impatience is of the devil himself who can't wait. You know, think of Eve, think of Cain, think of Israel in the desert, think of Judas. It was impatience that drove them to rebel against Jesus. And so this issue of when it's time to say no to leading is was just just how do I discern is this God's timing you know to go for it, and the reason I uh, church history is so important in learning from the history of our last two thousand years is because uh, 
when we're not a slow people. So, so much of the future, I believe, of the church is to be grounded in the last 2,000 years. And we learn from the past to go forward in the future. The Church of Jesus Christ did not start in the United States, didn't start in the colonies, uh, didn't start with the Reformation either. And that's why I recommend to you, if you've never downloaded this, uh, it's a free ebook on our website. I, I wrote a little ebook called uh, Church History Matters and uh, why it's so important and how we can learn from the different streams of the church, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, uh, you know, the global church. And it's, you can just download it, emotionallyhealthy.org slash church history, emotionallyhealthy.org slash his, church history. And I commend you and encourage you to pick it up. Uh, just this past week, Christians were killed in Egypt on their way to a pilgrimage. And, uh, you know, stuff's happening around the world we have no idea about. And uh, it's so important that we are learning lessons from the global church, streams different from us, uh, to mature into the men and women he's called us to be, and to be able to discern him rightly for the future. So again, I began, as I said last week, this whole process of learning to say no. When is it time to say no to leadership opportunities? Uh, when I began reading the Desert Fathers, uh, and I read stories like that of Theodore Fermi. Now, something seminary never talked about or leadership training or mentoring. And uh, it's a story from the fourth century where Theodore was a desert father and, and they were trying to pull him out of the desert to go be a, a priest or a leader in the church. And he said to them, let me go pray to God to tell me for sure whether I ought to go function publicly as a, as a leader, as a priest, as a deacon. And he prayed to God, if it's your will that I just stand in that place, make me sure of it. Then a pillar of fire appeared to him stretching from earth to heaven. And a voice said, if you can become like this pillar of fire, go and be a deacon. And so he decided against it. Why? Because he realized the call was to become fired. I have such a walk with God, stand between heaven and earth, that I need to have a, be a, have a life in God, sufficient to speak for God uh, in public. And I, again, it's, it's a bit of a scary story and who is worthy of such a thing, but it's meant, it just, it, 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 it slammed me down because I feel like, oh my gosh, the most important thing is life is to, in, in life as a leader is to be what I'm preaching and called to, and, and, and to discern when do I say no to leadership opportunities because I'm not ready, uh, and I need to wait till later to exercise it. Let me tell you a couple of little stories here. What Anthony of Athanasius, um, 251 to 356 AD, and, and he said no to leadership. Initially, he had a great upbringing, raised by Christian parents, and Anthony uh, lived in solitude for years outside his village before retreating to the desert to live for 20 years. So he said no to leadership for 20 years um, and lived in solitude and silence, seeking the face of God, wrestling with demons. You can read his biography. It's very interesting. But he emerges after 20 years of solitude and people recognize in him the qualities of a, quote, authentic, healthy human being, whole in body, mind, and soul. And thousands and thousands of people sought him out for counsel uh, from God. They would speak to them, and a massive movement followed. And, and uh, it's a tremendous story, but it was it was that transformation that uh, the false self shed off this guy. And uh, but he said no to leadership. Then a time came he came out and with enormous power. And he's considered the father of an Eastern and Western Church. I mean, in terms of monasticism, and and a great movement followed him. But he said no to leadership. Uh, for a good twenty years. And actually, what's interesting, he emerged, led, and then towards the end of his life. Uh, he went deeper into a retreat at an inner mountain in the wilderness where he lived for the rest of his life. One of, the, one of Russia's best-known and beloved saints and leaders is a guy named Seraphim of Sarov, Saint Seraphim of Sarov. 
And in the early 1800s, he entered a monastery. That's where he comes in the early 1800s. But he entered a monastery at the age of 19. He spent 15 years in this monastery in community. Then he, then he secluded himself for 16 years in a hut in the forest, studying the Bible, praying continuously. And after being you know, physically deteriorating, he got beaten up by robbers. Uh, he moves into a small room of a monastery, and he lives as a recluse. And then in 1825, at this point, if I did the math from his life when he was born in 1759, it's 1825, he's 66 years old. I did the math. He emerges out of his cell, and he begins to receive visitors. And sometimes they say thousands in a day. And he became well-known, famous for his prophetic gifts, his healing miracles, his spiritual direction and wisdom. And he dies in 1833, which is actually only eight years later. He's 74 years old. But he is uh, one of Russia's best-known and beloved saints. Uh, but he wrote this. A, a monk, a leader, must first withdraw, withdraw, and in silence learn the truth about himself and God. Then, after a long and vigorous preparation and solitude, having gained the gifts of discernment, he can open the door of his cell and admit the world from which he formerly fled. What makes these stories so important is they speak to an inner life anchored in God. And we're so steeped in Western culture and the Western church that we actually think our level of activity and movement is normal. Then we just pick out people who are you know, great secular leaders, perhaps, and gifted in organization, and we make them pastors or leaders without blinking an eye, and, and it's not normal. It's not in flow with, it, with history. And in fact, two people in church history have made a big impact on me, and I want to uh, share them with you today. In fact, uh, these are the two folks I wanted to talk about from the first part. The first is this, St. Bernard of Clairvaux from the 12th century, and the second is uh, Gregory of Nazianus. Uh, let me begin first with Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a leader in the 1100s, uh, he was a founder of a, a monastery in Clairvaux, France. And at that time, the monasteries were, were corrupted with petty politics, worldliness. And uh, he was actually a young man at the time, his late 20s, but with enormous energy. He, he worked so hard at labor to restore vitality and health to this corrupted monastic system. And actually, by the time of his death uh, in 1153, he'd established 300 monasteries throughout Europe. But toward the end of his life, one of his spiritual sons became the leader of the Western Church, the Pope. His name was Eugene III. And Eugene III uh, had lived in a monastery with him, and uh, now he had this massive responsibility. Bernard's an older man, uh, and he's, leading, he's got tremendous weight uh, on him, pressure to lead the church. And Bernard writes in these letters, uh, and because he's concerned that his interior life is not sufficient to cope with his level of responsibility. And Bernard grieves about the demands of the office that he's carrying. And so he warns him because he'd not, apparently, in Bernard's view, uh, he hadn't sufficiently grounded himself. Uh, I don't want to say he was a sloppy monk. That's my you know, translation. Uh, that that he, his inner life, wasn't, interior life wasn't quite ready, so he calls him to, a, to rearrange his life to be with God in, in such a strictness and to be careful to not engage in activity or levels of activity before the time is ripe. I mean, to stay as the Pope, but to, but to be very, very careful because Bernard had no patience for an active life that was not nourished by a deep interior life. And he actually called it the sin of sloth or, or laziness. And the sin of sloth to him was when, you're, when we're busy because we can't bear the effort demanded to a life of solitude and, and, and stillness. And that was for him a sloth for, of leadership. 
because the active life was to flow from the abundance of a contemplative life with Jesus. That, again, the principle we cannot give what we do not possess. And for him, the only people that could be, act, could be active bishops and leaders in the church were folks who were first prayers or contemplatives. And as he wrote, it's the rest of the soul, uh, the, the holy sleep, he called it, of contemplation that makes activity fruitful. It just flows out of you. And, and he wrote this. Uh, he said, remove yourself from the demands, lest you be distracted and get a hard heart. He was very concerned about our hearts getting hard. And he said this, if you're not terrified, if you're not terrified by the thought of getting a hard heart, it's already yours. <laughs> I love that. If you're not terrified by how easily you could have a hard heart, so you know, Psalm 95, you know, do not harden your heart hearts as they did at Meribah. You know, if you're not terrified by the thought of it, it's already yours. Oh, Lord, what a good word. 12th century. Second person I want to mention in churches that made a deep, deep impact on me, again, about how do I discern when to say no to leadership opportunities? And of course, I want to, number one is, is my interior life, you know, ready, able to sustain it? The second uh, person is Gregory of Nazianus, Nazianzus. And uh, he's one of the three in history called the Cappadocian Fathers. He was born around 330 AD in today's central Turkey. Brilliant theologian. He's uh, one of the key persons who helped craft the Nicene Creed. That is, the Nicene Creed is, is actually, if you don't believe the Nicene Creed, for example, you're, you're a heretic, okay, by Orthodox Christianity. It's something believed by the three major branches of the church uh, and defines scripture in terms of Orthodox biblical faith, uh, central document uh, for all of us, you know, follow Jesus. And uh, about, the, about the contours and parameters of what scripture teaches about Jesus being fully God, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so, what's interesting about Gregory is that his entire life was a succession of t- uh, being put in leadership, then fleeing leadership, uh, and going to be with God in, in a monastery. So, let me tell you a bit of his story. It's a fascinating story. His, his life is fascinating. Some of his writings are, are fascinating. A little bit difficult to read, <clears throat> but uh, at a very young age, his father was actually a, a priest or bishop some sort. He had oversight of other churches. <clears throat> and Gregory loved learning, but he was attracted from the beginning as a young man to a life of prayer and silence in the monastery. And he always dreamed of, of going to a desert or a mountain for a deeper relationship with God. And uh, when he was invited by, finally, to uh, go on a monastic retreat, he was overjoyed. In fact, he wrote about this joy. His father, however, as he, as he had left home at that point for a place called Pontus, <clears throat> Uh, his father needed help uh, as he was overseeing churches. And uh, so his father had him ordained in his absence, and uh, Gregory goes home. And he actually writes about it, uh, the oppression of being ordained. And he writes, I was so grieved by this act of tyranny. And eventually he flees uh, his city where his father was helping his father, and he goes back to the monastery, back to the mountain. But later he realizes you know, how, you know, it's not right. So he goes back to his father. Nine, 10 years later, he's promoted to a larger sphere of ordination uh, by Basil the Great. And again, he's ordained against his will. And he writes this, I was hoping to be free of practical affairs and devote myself to the contemplative life. And so he flees again from the responsibilities. Uh, And then his dad dies and he takes over the administration of his father's diocese. 
until a year later, he flees again to uh, a contemplative vocation of prayer, a life of prayer. Um, so, so he's struggling with, he's accepting the, the pastoral duties, but he finds them unhelpful for his walk, for his contemplative life. And then finally what happens is he, he goes back to his father's, you know, work. And uh, in 379 AD, uh, he's invited and asked to come back to go to Constantinople, the, the capital of the empire. And he's invited to be a bishop. And there's, a, there's an Orthodox minor, minority in this capital city, uh, but there's a great conflict going, in, going on between Arian theology, uh, which is basically Jesus not being fully God, uh, who are oppressing the Orthodox believers who believe in our Trinity as we believe in today. And he, he resists the call to go back to Constantinople because Constantinople represents everything he's not. It's like Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York all wrapped up in one. London, you know, it's worldly, it's busy, it's full of political stuff. And again, he writes about feeling, you know, coerced or obligated to go. But for some reason, he gets there, and for the next two years, he just throws himself with energy and creativity into leadership. Uh, he champions orthodoxy and with the priority of the worship of the Trinity. And uh, but but what happens is, you know, God uses him mightily and. But it's a violent time between Arians and Orthodox. They're fighting for control of the church and actually the empire. And he finds himself under threat of, of assassination. Uh, and so, and then the emperor, the new emperor comes into power and formally recognizes Gregory as the bishop of all Constantinople. And, uh, and then this group objects to him. He's caught in this political thing because he's teaching about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And so he resigns in disgust. And he returns to his mountain uh, to, a, to a monastic life. And he writes, give me my desert, my rural life, and my God. And a few years later, he, he dies. Uh, but it's, just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And the reason I, I love it is because it, it's his struggle to lead because he so wants to be with God. I remember meeting Basil Pennington uh, at uh, St. Joseph's Trappist Monastery in Massachusetts. Uh, before he died, and uh, I asked if we'd go for a walk around the grounds. At this point, I don't know his age, but he was quote retired. He'd been abbot of a, he'd been the head of a monastery. Then uh, he'd spoken, you know, many places around uh, at least North America. I knew about and written many many books. But at this point, he was quote retired, and uh, he he was so happy. And uh, actually, he died within a year of when I saw him. And we took a walk for about an hour, and he just said he was just so happy because now he could just pray, you know, be with God. He was doing the, all, you, know, con, you know, not running anything, just being with God in prayer. And he was just delirious. He talked about his his rule of life within the Trappist Benedictine rule of life. And uh, it just reminded me so much of, of Gregory, <laughs> of uh, Nazianzus, because being with God was such a joy, such a place of life. And there's something in that, I think, for, I mean, for for you, for me, for us in leadership, that it's it's that, David, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon a, his beauty and seek him in his temple. And above all else, what I seek, Lord, is you, to your face. You know, you know, Psalm 84, my, my soul, my heart hungers and thirsts for you, O God. You know, like a deer pants for water, Psalm 42, that it's not leadership that I seek. It's not impact that I seek. It's 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 the it's the Lord God I seek. I and it's that that Davidic heart. And I, I think Nazianus had that. I think Bernard had that. And if you they, you know they had flaws, both of them. Uh, but it's that we're about seeking you know his face. Now 
Gregory wrote some books and, uh, you know, a couple of his insights, and I'll just share them with you here before we close. And he, he writes about how it's truly necessary that he called it leisure. We need to be at leisure if we're going to know God. In other words, you can't do theology, he wrote, in a hurried, harried way. It's a reflective discipline that takes time, and it's not going to flourish amidst busyness. Uh, and so he insisted that pastors under him had a were theologically sharp. They, they, they knew scripture if they were going to lead other people faithfully. And so a large part of that competence for him was the capacity, they called it in his day, to be leisurely. That is to be unbusy, to take the time to know God if we're going to minister the things of God to people. Uh, that was a great, great insight uh, and word for us today. The second was he saw the magnitude of being a pastor, the pastoral office. And uh, one of his favorite verses about that was Ezekiel 3, 18, which says, I will hold you accountable for their blood about Ezekiel warning God's people. And it was small wonder he was terrified by the responsibility of being a shepherd. Uh, and he was embarrassed that so many pastors of his day treated being a pastor as kind of like a means of livelihood. They, they didn't see it as a vocation, a calling from God. And it's a very good word for us today. Uh, I'll tell you, it's a good word for me. Uh, as this podcast grows, I grow more sober and fearful, uh, even in podcasting. You know, Jerry used to share a few principles with me about teaching and preaching uh, with integrity, you know, for me. Uh, one was keeping it simple. She used to say, uh, don't get crazy you know, throwing out Greek words, et cetera. Believe what you're saying. Don't just parrot what someone else has said because it sounds good. Uh, hold that pulpit very responsibly. We're sitting here captive. Don't waste my time. Uh, know your power. The power to stand up in front of people and preach uh, is enormous power to speak for God. I mean, who is worthy of such a task? My goodness. And then to preach out of your being with Jesus. Uh, preach out of being with Jesus. Uh, there's nothing more important. And of course, you would say, cut, cut, cut. I call them Jerry's six principles of teaching and preaching with integrity. Uh, uh, you know, Bobby Clinton, who wrote uh, The Making of a Leader, it's a great book. I recommend it, Nav Press. Uh, it's actually the second edition. He was a professor at, at uh, Fuller for many years. He's emeritus right now. But he's done some of the best work I know on how leaders are developed and grow. Uh, and he writes about how the first 15, 20 years of our leadership, it's the real issue is not what God's doing through us, but what God's doing in us. Uh, that means if you start a leadership at you know 30 or 25, that means it's not until you're 45 to 50 that you're really going to see significant fruit go through, come out of, out of your life. In other words, it's primarily what God's doing inside of you. You think, oh my gosh, I, I should be further along. No, he's in that first 15, 20 years. He did a study of not just biblical leaders, but leaders through church history. And, and uh, so you've got to have a long view of a, your 40, 50, 60, 70 years of serving Jesus in leadership. Uh, and I want to encourage you to do that. And so sometimes it's important to say no to opportunities coming your way because God's doing a work in you and time is needed for that. And so you know, Robert Clinton talks about how there's a test that we go through as leaders that we've got to pass if we're going to move on. It talks about things like integrity tests, things like Daniel went in chapter one. Tests come to every leader of integrity. And what we decide there at that point is going to influence our long-term future. Things like obedience tests, like Abraham had various times in his journey. Tests of authority, submitting to authority, uh, willing joyfully. Tests of how we deal with 
uh, really difficult conflicts. Tests of when we're betrayed and every leader gets betrayed. Tests of being of backlash like Moses had or Nehemiah had and how we deal with that. And again, when you don't pass those tests, Clinton makes the point that you do not pass go. And so few leaders finish well because they don't see the long, large picture. And so the theme of this podcast is, has been the last two of them. When is it time to say no to leadership or leadership opportunities? And uh, it's a prayerful discernment question, of course. And uh, but it's not a quick yes. Uh, it's a discernment question. And you may be saying, it's too late, Pete. I'm already in the responsibility. And let me invite you to make adjustments, pull back, get a coach, uh, you know, maybe for a new revised rule of life. Ask yourself, what is God saying? What do I need to do to get in a place to listen? Maybe a sabbatical for, you know, these are gifts for a long period of one month, two months, four months. Because remember, the greatest gift you can give the people you serve is your own transformed person in Jesus. That is your greatest gift. And all leadership is going to flow out of that, who you are. So let me encourage you, as part of your leadership, uh, one, to invest in yourself. And one way you can do that is, is through digging more deeply into all this stuff that we call today emotionally healthy discipleship. And uh, let me invite you to the monthly mastering, the launch of the EH Discipleship course. Find out what that's about and uh, perhaps to slowly bring that into your community and you pilot it and you begin to live it so you can bring it and you begin to shift a culture. But starting with you, uh, not, you're not saying you got it all together, but you're on the way. And we're also, you know, offering a leadership day on February 7th. Uh, and I want to invite you to that. It's a day of just exposure to what does it mean to a deep following of Jesus like we're talking about here in this podcast. It'll be here in New York City for a day on February 7th. So check us out at EmotionallyHealthy.org. Listen, everybody, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I, along with you, am praying to live out what we're talking about here today. It's no small task uh, in 21st century uh, Christianity living in a world like ours. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Uh, and may he give you the grace and the power to follow him uh, in what he has before you today. So bless you. See you next week. God bless. Bye-bye.